Good morning, clerks. Welcome back to another episode of The Clerk Commute. Hello, and welcome back to The Clerk Commute. I'm Brendan, and my co-host today is Lauren. We have a lot to get through today, so we'll get started right away. Today, we're going to be covering third trimester bleeding and reduced fetal movements. Today's episode was edited by Dr. Noor Lidhani, a high-risk obstetrician at Sunnybrook Health Science Center. Today, we'll be working through two cases. The first case is a 36-year-old G1P0 at 38 weeks and zero days presenting with vaginal bleeding. And the second case is going to be a 26-year-old G1P0 who says she hasn't felt her baby move in a while and wanted to come in to be assessed. Okay, so let's talk about Miss P first. This is our first case. Miss P is presenting with antepartum bleeding. This means bleeding after 20 weeks, but before labor. The most common cause of antepartum bleeding is something called bloody show. This refers to a small amount of bleeding from the cervix caused by cervical change. It can occur with or without the detachment of the cervical mucus pug that seals the cervix during pregnancy. Sometimes people will come in and they say they lost their mucus plug and it was blood tinged, and this is most commonly bloody show. Although bloody show is normal and benign, any antipartum hemorrhage requires a full workup to rule less common but very dangerous causes. Specifically, we worry most about placenta previa, abruptio placentae, uterine rupture, and vasa previa. Uterine rupture and vasa previa are more rare and we will, we will not be discussing them today. Cervical lesions like polyps, ectropions, cervicitis, and cervical cancer can also cause bleeding during, during pregnancy. Finally, it is important to consider rectal bleeding, such as with hemorrhoids or hematuria, as mimickers of antepartum bleeding. So you definitely want to make sure that you're asking about questions related to the GI tract or the GU tract when you're talking about bleeding, because the bleeding might not, in fact, be coming from the vagina. Great. All right. And an important message for today. So listen up, listeners. We do not perform a vaginal exam on any patient with antepartum bleeding until placenta previa has been ruled out by ultrasound because this can cause significant bleeding. Lauren, why don't you define and describe placenta previa and abruption now? Perfect. So placenta previa is the term used to describe an abnormal location of the placenta, which is near or partially covering or completely covering the cervical os. This typically causes painless bleeding. Listen up, listeners, clinical pearl. Placenta previa causes painless bleeding. Okay, so more about placenta previa. Vaginal delivery is contraindicated in patients with placenta previa. Risk factors for placenta previa include a previous placenta previa in another pregnancy, multiparity, increased maternal age, fibroids, or other uterine abnormalities and uterine scars from previous surgeries, such as C-sections, myomectomies, and DNCs. The most common risk factor for placenta previa is a previous cesarean section. The vast majority of placenta previa is identified on ultrasound before 20 weeks and resolves before delivery. Okay, now on to placental abruption. Placental abruption is due to the separation of the placenta from the uterus. This can occur spontaneously or be the result of trauma. This is a serious cause of maternal and neonatal mor morbidity and mortality. Associated symptoms include a hypertonic uterus, uterine tenderness, and non-reassuring fetal heart rate patterns. 
placental abruption presents with mild to moderate abdominal or back pain with contractions. Vaginal bleeding can be mild, but it can also be severe and life-threatening. Clinical pearl. The amount of vaginal bleeding correlates poorly with the degree of placental separation and does not serve as a useful marker of impeding fetal or maternal risk. Do not be reassured by a small amount of bleeding. Risk factors for abruption are previous history of abruption, maternal hypertension or vascular disease, cigarette smoking, excessive alcohol consumption, cocaine, multiparity, high maternal age, PPROM, and distended uterus, such as from polyhydramnios or multiple pregnancy, uterine anomalies, fibroids, and trauma. Wow, great, Lauren. That was an excellent, excellent overview of placenta previa and placental abruption. Just a quick summary for listeners. Remember, placenta previa typically causes painless bleeding, whereas placental abruption will typically have painful bleeding. Now let's move on to the patient, Lauren. What do you want to ask on history? Right. So we've covered a lot of the triage history in a previous episode, but as a brief refresher, we want to know in general for all triage patients, mom's age, gestational age, her GTPAL status, her RH status, the four cardinal triage questions, her current pregnancy history, including antenatal care, vaccinations, ultrasounds, and any complications, her previous pregnancies, complications, and mode of delivery for those, as well as her past medical history, medications, allergies, and social history. Specifically in this patient, I would like to know, I would like to better characterize the bleeding. What was the extent of the bleeding? Were there any clots that were passed? Was she soaking through clothes? Was she feeling lightheaded? Were there any tissues that had passed? In addition, you want to pay close attention to onset, the signs and symptoms of labor, which is often preceded by bloody show and happens more gradually than those with abruption. For example, in, in bloody show, the contractions will start more gradually and become more painful and regular. Whereas in abruption, typically there is more bleeding than bloody show, more uterine rigidity, more abdominal pain, and a high frequency of contractions early on. Bloody show usually involves blood mixed with mucus and the bleeding tends to be very light. It is also important to ask whether the patient is experiencing any pain and, and whether any type of trauma preceded the um, onset of this bleeding. I would also like to ask whether placenta previa was seen on any previous ultrasounds, and I would like to look this up in the chart just to be sure. I would also want to address some of the previous, previously mentioned risk factors for placental previa and abruption in my history. Another thing to consider is whether this patient had a previous bimanual exam or intercourse in the last several days. Some spotting or bleeding after a bimanual exam, such as on a cervical check in the office or after intercourse, is actually quite common and can be a reason that people present to the hospital with some vaginal bleeding when they are quite pregnant. Great. That's quite an in-depth summary as always, Lauren. Also, don't forget, and this is another important clinical pearl for our listeners, is that you need to know this patient's RH status. All right, so for our patient, I'll remind you, Miss P is a 36-year-old G1P0 coming in at 38 weeks, zero days with vaginal bleeding. Her blood type is A positive. She tells you that she was sitting at home watching television when she got up to go to the bathroom. Upon wiping, she noticed red blood on the toilet paper and immediately Googled bleeding in the third trimester and decided it was best to come to hospital for assessment. The blood was mucousy and it was a small amount and there has been no blood no additional blood since she first noticed it. She doesn't recall anything traumatic happening or any other possible precipitant. It is her first pregnancy, pregnancy and she was very worried. 
She has not had any bleeding since she first noticed the blood this morning. There were no clots or other tissue associated with the blood. She is not in any pain, but feels what she thinks are light contractions. On her 20-week ultrasound, which you can also pull up on the patient's EMR, the placenta was clear of the cervical os. In other words, more than two centimeters away from the os, so there is no placental previous. Otherwise, she had normal antenatal care, including all vaccinations and ultrasounds. There have been no abnormalities or complications throughout her pregnancy, and she has no underlying medical conditions, no past medical history, and no drug allergies. Knowing all of this, what would you like to look for on physical exam? Okay, great. Thanks, Brendan. So the first thing I would like to do is start by checking the maternal vital signs and look for signs of hypovolemia. A non-stress test should also be done to assess the fetal status. I would do an abdominal exam to assess the uterine size, tenderness, and uterine tone, and to rule out an active acute abdomen suggestive of abruption. Speculum exams should be performed to assess for anatomic reasons for bleeding, such as polyps or lacerations. Again, a digital cervical exam is absolutely contraindicated until placenta previously is, is ruled out. Once this has been ruled out, the cervix can be checked to determine cervical dilation and effacement, which might give you an idea of whether the person is in labor, and perhaps this is more likely to be bloody show. Okay, and are there any uh, investigations you'd like to order at this time, Lauren? I might want to do um, investigations in this case. So basically, this patient had several ultrasounds on the EMR that I saw with my own eyes that documented that the placenta was nowhere near the os. It was clear of the os. The placenta cannot move closer to the ox and os, and so in this case, placenta previa is ruled out. Let's say, for example, however, this patient was someone who came in from an outside hospital and we didn't have records. I could use a transvaginal ultrasound to rule out placenta previa and vasoprevia. Note, ultrasound cannot be used to rule out placental abruption, and this is diagnosed clinically. I would also order a CBC for a baseline hemoglobin, hematocrit, and group and screen in case transfusion is needed, and I would like to make note of the maternal RH status and antibodies. Coagulation studies and a cross-match should also be ordered if the bleeding is severe, although this does not appear to be the case here. You can also consider doing a, a KB test to measure the amount of fetal blood in the maternal circulation and determine the need for an additional dose of Rogan possibly. In an emergency, placental location can also be assessed abdominally. If it is fundal, then you know that the uh, you know that it is clear of the os. Exactly. So I'll now update you on your findings. Miss P is hemodynamically stable and her NST is normal. There is uterine contraction on TOCO lasting approximately 30 seconds occurring every 10 minutes. There is no uterine tenderness and the uterus is mildly firm when palpating during times of uterine activity as seen on the TOCO. Transvaginal ultrasound does not reveal a low-lying placenta. How would you proceed? Okay, so just to summarize, Miss L is presenting at term with painless mucusy bleeding from the vagina. Placenta previa was ruled out on ultrasound. She is not feeling any contractions or pain, and there is no risk factors for placental abruption. At this point, I would probably do a speculum exam to see whether I could see a source of bleeding, as it might be coming from outside the cervix um, in the vaginal cavity. I would also do a cervical exam to assess for dilation and effacement of the cervix to see if she's in labor. All right, so the cervical exam shows that the cervix is posterior, one centimeter dilated, and 50% effaced. What is your management plan now? All right, so it looks like there is some evidence of cervical change, which is consistent with early labor, and her vaginal bleeding was most likely due to bloody show. 
At this point, depending on how close she lives from the hospital and some other factors, I would probably send her home with instructions on when to return, including the 511 rule, which says when contractions are occurring every five minutes, lasting one minute each at one hour, um, or if she has any reason for concern, including increased vaginal bleeding, loss of fluid, or reduced fetal movements, or any other reason that she would like to come back from now until then. Okay, great. And now let's say that we did see evidence for placenta previa on the transvaginal ultrasound. How would you manage this patient? Okay, so this is a little more complicated. So if a patient is found to have bleeding with placenta previa, your goals of care are to achieve and or maintain maternal hemodynamic stability with IV fluids and blood transfusions as needed and determine whether an emergency cesarean section is indicated. The patient's vitals, urine output, blood loss, and blood work should be monitored, and the fetus should also be monitored by electric fet electronic fetal monitoring. Rogam should be administered to Rh-negative mo mothers who need it. Patients who are actively bleeding or who have, who have bleeding that cannot be stopped will be admitted to hospital for further observation and care. If there has been little or no bleeding or the bleeding has stopped, bed rest at home may be prescribed very carefully. Women who remain at home must be able to access medical care immediately should more bleeding resume. This often means that they live close to the hospital and, and be at home with another adult. Even if her bleeding is stable, if there has been previous, if there have been multiple bleeds, I would, um, that in and of itself would warrant admission. Women with placenta previa are advised to avoid sexual intercourse and vigorous exercise and to reduce their activity level. If a patient whose pregnancy is at term presents to the hospital with bleeding due to placenta previa, cesarean section is typically performed even if emergent delivery is not required. So if our patient, Miss P, presented and it turned out to be placenta previa, it is likely that she would undergo a cesarean section during that admission. Okay, great. So that wraps up our first case talking about placenta previa and vaginal bleeding close to labor. We're now going to move on to our next case, which is going to be Miss F, a 26-year-old G1P0, who comes in saying she hasn't felt her baby move normally, and she wants it to be assessed urgently. Okay, before we go on, I want to address when moms start to feel fetal movements and how regular fetal, or how regular normal fetal movement is. So mothers start to feel their baby kick at 20 to 22 weeks gestational age, but are not recommended to begin um, counting fetal kicks until around 30 weeks. A normal kick count is at least six kicks in two hours, but it is also important that women start to learn the pattern that they are used to feeling. Awesome. So when a woman presents with decreased fetal movement, the first step is to take a history, including the duration of reduced fetal movements, whether there has been absence of fetal movements, and whether this is the first occasion the woman has perceived decreased fetal movements. In the history, you should also assess for risk factors for stillbirth and interuterine growth restriction. These are divided into three categories, fetal risk factors, placental risk factors, and maternal risk factors. Fetal factors include chromosomal abnormalities, malformation, and fetal infection. Placental factors include placental abruption, placental previa, abnormal placental cord insertion, twins, and prolonged gestation. And the final category, maternal factors, include things such as maternal hypertension, maternal diabetes, cardiovascular disease, pulmonary disease, and substance use. Um, okay, very good. So I'll fill you in on Mrs. F. Mrs. F presented to triage after not feeling her baby move in the last three hours. 
She said that she spent the last two hours before presently lying down and focusing on the fetal movements, and she was still unable to perceive any. She has not experienced this before in this pregnancy. Overall, the pregnancy was entirely uncomplicated with normal genetic screening, normal ultrasounds to date with no concerns for IUGR. Mrs. F is healthy with no underlying medical conditions, diabetes, or hypertension. What is your next step in management? All right. So for a patient like this, several investigations are then required. The first investigation is a non-stress test to assess fetal heart rate. When you look at the fetal heart rate, you want to check for four things. One, the baseline heart rate. Two, the variability. And three, if there are any accelerations. And four, any decelerations. So a normal fetal heart rate is between 110 and 160 beats per minute. Variability means how much the heart rate is fluctuating from the baseline. In a normal healthy fetus, there will be moderate variability, meaning 6 to 25 beats per minute differences from baseline. Absent, minimal, or marked variability is a reason for further investigations. Reason for minimal variability might be sleep cycle, fetal acidosis, drug use such as benzodiazepine, magnesium sulfate, narcotics, or prematurity. Marked or increased variability might be from mild hypoxemia, fetal stimulation, or drugs like cocaine, nicotine, or methamphetamine. Accelerations or AXEL are visually apparent abrupt increases in fetal heart rate above baseline. The specific definition of acceleration depends on gestational age. When the gestational age is greater than 32 weeks, an acceleration means an increase from baseline of more than 15 beats per minute for more than 15 seconds and a return to baseline in less than two minutes. Decelerations or decels are visually apparent decreases in fetal heart rate and they fall into three categories, which are early, variable, or late decels. An early decel, though hard to describe without a visual representation, is a gradual decrease and return to baseline that mirrors the contraction shown on TOCO. So when you see a contraction on TOCO, you see a decrease in the heart rate that follows. These are benign and they are normal physiologic responses to fetal head compression. Variable D cells are an abrupt decrease in fetal heart rate, which are varied in shape and timing. These may represent cord compressions. If a variable deceleration has complicated features, in other words, it falls below 70 beats per minute for longer than 60 seconds and has a slow return to baseline or is associated with loss of variability or with fetal tachy or bradycardia, this might be indicative of fetal hypoxia. Finally, late decelerations are gradual decreases in fetal heart rate that occur after a contraction. These are always pathologic and are a sign of utero-placental insufficiency and hypoxia. There should be no decelerations if there is no uterine activity. Okay, right. So if NST demonstrates fetal compromise, immediate delivery might be warranted or you might watch this more carefully. Miss F, on the other hand, has had an entirely normal NST. Her baseline heart rate was 145. There was moderate variability. Axels were present and no decelerations were seen. However, she is still not feeling her baby move much. What should we do next? Okay, so next we want to do a biophysical profile, which is something commonly referred to as a BPP. This would be a good next step. A BPP is an ultrasound study to assess overall fetal well-being with, and we score it out of eight. BPPs look at four things over the course of 30 minutes. 
The first is gross body movement and a score of two is assigned if we see three discrete body or limb movements. The second parameter is fetal tone and this looks for one episode of active extension and flexion of a limb or the trunk or an opening and closing of the hand. The third factor assessed is breathing movement. To achieve a score of two in this component, we need to see 30 seconds of fetal breathing movement. And finally, amniotic fluid is assessed as the last component of the BPP and a score of two is provided if you can find a two centimeter by two centimeter pocket of fluid. Um, okay, excellent. So you would send Mrs. F for a BPP. BPP. If BPP score was eight out of eight, you would provide her with reassurance and discharge her home after counseling with her on how to appropriately count fetal movements. You would also like to ask when her next appointment is with her obstetrician and hope that it is soon. If not, you would recommend for her to schedule a quicker appointment with her obstetrician. It is also important to ask her to return to triage promptly if she does perceive reduced fetal movements again. If the BPP would be less than eight out of eight, then further monitoring and maybe delivery would be warranted. Okay. So we hope you enjoyed this episode summary of two common presentations to triage, third trimester bleeding and reduced fetal movements. We hope to see everyone back for our next episode. Bye, guys.